from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Elaine Cha. Rising college freshmen start finding financial aid letters in their mailboxes as soon as the first week of January. What's in those thick envelopes is a lot of numbers and even more text. And understanding it all is becoming an increasingly multi-generational concern because student debt's effects aren't limited to those soon-to-be collegians. They very much involve parents and caregivers who carry their own higher education debt burdens. Executive Director of the Scholarship Foundation, Faith Sandler, has on-the-ground perspective into what families and students should look out for when reviewing those incoming financial aid packages, as well as the struggle parents have trying to keep up with their own outstanding student loan balances. Welcome to the show, Faith. Good afternoon, Elaine. Now, you began doing this work around financial aid and financial support for college students nearly 35 years ago. For the sake of understanding how you connect to this work and how it compares to the way things are now, what did your own college financing journey involve? Great question. I grew up in a family very education conscious. My father was a teacher. My mother worked in a school as well. I had no idea how poor we were until I graduated high school and was ready to apply for college. Mm -hmm. At that moment, I qualified for every bit of need-based aid and realized how different my opportunities were than others who had the full cost of education provided by their family. And where was that happening? Where did you grow up and where did you go to college? I grew up right here in St. Louis. I went to college as far from St. Louis as I could get in California and returned to St. Louis for graduate school. Okay. Now, how much of the full aid that you received at that time had to do with that time period during which you were pursuing an undergrad degree? A great deal had to do with that time period. First of all, um, sad to admit, but I went to college before Ronald Reagan was elected president, and many things about our nation's approach to higher education and financial aid in particular uh, changed in 1980 or so. Um, I was in the middle of college at the time, but had received many of the financial aid opportunities that had been created decades before around a different federal agenda of higher education being a common good something that should be available to anyone, regardless of economic circumstance, that we all stand to benefit if everyone has an opportunity. So over these years that you've been engaged in this work, surely you've heard many stories about people navigating student loans and college aid. Are there a couple of archetypal stories maybe that you've heard throughout your career? I think the first is for us to imagine what it is, in particular with regard to student loans, to be asked to sign a piece of paper that turns out to be legally binding, that can put one into debt far beyond middle age at this point, 
um, and not really understanding that your signature is binding or what it is to pay interest on a sum of money or even what four, five, six digits uh, mean in a financial sense. And for that type of story, what do you think accounts for the circumstances that would even make that possible for somebody to sign something and and not have that awareness? Mm. So, Elaine, one of the things that I like to share with people is what an influence money and access to money is on everything about education and higher education in particular. So I don't think it's common for any 18-year-old to understand leveraging money for a greater good or debt. However, if you grow up in a family with means and you make a mistake, like signing an agreement you shouldn't have or incurring an expense that you cannot pay, typically there's a family member or a source of support that will bail your adolescent brain out of the mistake that you made. That is not the case for an increasing number of young people who, ha- who may grow up in very supportive and loving families, but where there is no margin for error. And that gets to a question, I think, that deals with sort of what feels like an American notion of independence or individualism that makes paying for college solely the concern of the individual. Mm. Now, in your experience, do the costs of college education actually stay in the province of the individual? That is, to what extent do they involve and even require support from others? I think that they require support from others because we live in a community in which a rising tide lifts all boats. It benefits me no matter what income I have. If the people with whom I live and interact on a daily basis are also educated and fulfilled, have an opportunity to participate in democracy, however flawed it may be, and can find their way in in their own due time. So I think that right now we're in a situation in which higher education is viewed as a private good. If you can afford it, you can purchase the opportunity and it will position you differently for employment and long-term gain um, if, in fact, you do complete a degree and continue in a career. Would you say that there has been a, a sort of tipping point as far as broad awareness of this problem around student debt is concerned? There's a tip. Yes, there has been a tipping point, but it is far too late for a significant number of people. We've come to this realization as a country, in part thanks to COVID, in part thanks to the shutdown of the federal loan programs, we've realized how over-indebted many of our young people are, and many people who are not so young anymore are over-indebted due to higher education costs. Um, And we have built a bubble many people likened to the mortgage crisis um, several years ago. And you just referred to the shutdowns of some of those mm-hmm. programs. Talk a little bit more about that. So in, uh, as many of your listeners will know, in late March of 2020, the federal government mm, froze or stopped requiring collections or payments on student loans. 
They are by far the biggest lender, of course, uh, and the biggest financer of higher education for our country's young people. Um, Those loans have still not been collected upon. They are still in a state of abeyance. We've had promises of forgiveness from the administration that turn out to be challenged legally. We've had continued deferment or delay of repayment. We've had a great deal of confusion that surrounds this and a great deal of national uncertainty about the value of a degree if the risk is so high. And the value of the degree is not only applicable to the generation that is going into school, but also those above and and below, generationally speaking. Um, to what extent do you think that uh, that families are becoming more and more of a, a focus point in talking about student debt and what is manageable and what is not? I, I'm afraid that that too is happening too late or, or later than it should have. So for a long time, we've recognized that wealth is passed from one generation to another. We've failed to understand how debt gets passed from one generation to another, and, and student loan debt in particular. Student loan debt cannot be discharged in bankruptcy in this country. Um, Often, students who are the first in the family to graduate college owe a debt of uh, a moral debt, uh, a debt they will long to repay Mm -hmm. to the people who came before them who are living in poverty, are on the edge of poverty to make it possible for that young person to complete a degree. So we see students all the time uh, uh, at the Scholarship Foundation who are not just responsible for their own independence, but wish to support their parents or grandparents with their bills, need to help siblings, and may even have started a family themselves and have responsibility to the generation that comes after financially. They're seen as as a a treasure to the family, um, but also have a feeling of obligation that spans generations in both directions. That's a huge burden uh, financially um, and one that weighs very heavily on a person getting started in adult life. And certainly affects decisions that they they can make. That's right. In August this year, the Washington Post reported that 24% of Americans ages 18 to 24 years has student student debt. Mm -hmm. That number nearly mirrors the percentage of Americans aged 35 to 49, carrying debt for education, that is 23%. What issues arise when you have a couple of generations of family members under student loan debt? So many of the things that a student uh, with privilege can count on are not available to a student who comes from a family with generations of debt. So for example? For example, the capacity of a family to pay a mortgage and live in a school district that provides a college prep curriculum to a young person. For example, the opportunity to take the ACT test and or SAT and score sufficiently to be sought after by colleges and universities, to take it two or three times to take a prep test so Mm -hmm. that you can boost your score just a little bit more, the opportunity to visit schools, Um, so many of the things that make a real difference in in navigating the college journey. 
So I, th- I think even more importantly, though, the idea that um, long-term decision-making has to be put off, major purchases, major commitments, the things that build equity, financial equity, I mean, in a household or a family get deferred longer and longer. So the education by itself is not is not enough. I think there is a kind of idea that if you get the education, that that will be sufficient. But that is an isolation of all of the other things that make you a human being. This is true. So the education, higher education is certainly not sufficient. However, I think it is a fallacy to believe that anyone in this economy, in this country at this moment, can thrive with just a high school diploma. So some form of post-secondary education training purpose and path is necessary for any young person to succeed. We're speaking with Faith Sandler, who's the executive director of the Scholarship Foundation of St. Louis, and we're discussing student debt and its implications for present and future generations pursuing higher education. Faith, you talked about the transfer of wealth and then that transfer of debt. In the context of St. Louis, what community-level implications could we be facing if we pay too little attention to student debt transfer? Mm-hmm. I think we could face uh, a reduction in the college-going population. I think we could face a reduction in college completion. And most importantly, we would see that where the economic um, and racial inequities are the highest in our community. So we will see a retrenchment of some of the progress we have made in this country with regard to access to higher education and completion of degree. So all those goals and all those equity statements, all of our uh, local companies are publishing to their websites. They will have a very hard time fulfilling if we cannot produce and support uh, young scholars towards their their goals. Mm-hmm. Now, the there is a the same Washington Post story that we referred to earlier also stated that among the fastest growing categories of student loan borrowers over the past two decades, 20 years, mm-hmm. are black students mm-hmm. and people ages 50 and older, hmm. right? And that's mm-hmm. according to the most recent Federal Reserve data. What does that say about who's going to college and who's paying for it? Mm-hmm. We've shifted it to a sort of consumer um, model of financing. So the people who are paying for it are the consumer, the student, the family that supports that student. So um, the what institutions are doing, higher education institutions here and elsewhere, is admitting students um, knowing full well there is not the financial capability in this household to pay what will be due on the tuition bill in the first semester or the second. And is this why you were saying, emphasizing completion? Correct. Okay. We are admitting students knowing that they will have to take out loans in order to even enter college, and that the loan itself will not fill the gap. Think of that. Um, It's the equivalent to certifying a mortgage and saying, we're going to write a mortgage that covers the cost of the the first floor of this house, but not the second floor. 
Um, so we're, we're putting students in school saying, we're going to write you a loan, but we know full well that you will not be able to stay in school. Um, that's very dangerous and very expensive, not just financially, but academically, because what happens is young people are forcibly withdrawn if they owe a back balance to their school, cannot get a transcript, and cannot transfer to another institution as a result. So that is partially why you'll see people later and later in life still carrying debt from an earlier um, forced withdrawal for financial reasons. And why is that happening? Hmm. <laughs> Um, I think it's happening because prices have been um, inflated for higher education, partially as an attempt to stratify the population, those with privilege from those without, um, privilege, racial, racial, economic, and other forms of privilege. So part of what is happening is that we have more and more people who, who bought into a dream that was always going to be out of their reach financially. What does that tell us then about the value of higher education? I mean, if, if there is a, a kind of trap door, mm -hmm. um, then why even move toward that door? Um, what it tells us is that we better accompany every person we can to the edge of that door and keep them from falling through. And that is, ex and there are some simple ways to do that. One is to, is basic math. Help people understand this is the total cost of education. Here's what it will end up um, meaning to you in terms of cash out of your pocket now and repayment obligations in the future. That sounds simple when I say it. Almost very few colleges and universities explain that clearly to people before they have them sign on the dotted line. So what are some of the things that Scholarship Foundation then does in order to equip people mm -hmm. um, to do what you've just talked about? So first, we provide them all the math. Second, we do not uh, advance any aid, um, grant, scholarship grant or interest-free loan unless we know every dollar the student is going to need is accounted for by the school, by federal programs, and by us. So we would never make a commitment to a student unless we know we can commit to the last dollar they're going to need. Secondly, we will hold the debt, um, we'll, we'll keep the debt manageable uh, and less than the national average because all of our students are low income and do not need to be saddled with any more debt than um, necessary to achieve the degree of their, cho cho their choice. Um, and by the way, we don't want to limit anybody with regard to the capacity to pursue a degree. We just want to make it safer than it now is. Many people who have tried to make sense of financial aid, FAFSA, mm -hmm. right, um, student loans, they do not speak fondly of the experience. What about the process of applying for and managing student aid makes it so confusing? Well, the first thing I want to say, which is not a direct answer to your question, is get help. No one should try walking that path by themselves, no matter who they are. So the, the first thing is it, first, it's too much to, to figure out if, you're a, if you do not have full time to navigate 
um, all the intricacies of the system. The FAFSA itself is not that complicated if your life story fits in all the right boxes. Mm -hmm. But so many people need help understanding how, how does this apply to me? Help me be me in this particular bureaucracy. And in, in terms of those boxes, you mentioned that it, it's low-income students mm -hmm. who really benefit in a, a particular way by getting all the information. What does low-income constitute? What is What are the levels or the thresholds for that? So in this country right now, to qualify for the largest amount of federal need-based aid, which is in the form of our Pell Grant, you would think of a household income of, say, $40,000 or less. And that's a household income. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, that doesn't mean that people don't have financial need if their household income is higher than that. It just means that that population qualifies for the, the most aid, similar to the way we think of students receiving, for instance, free and reduced lunch at the K through 12 level. What is it about student financial aid that folks most often miscomprehend? Um, it depends on which folks you mean. People, people with wealth tend to miscomprehend that somehow their merit or their insistence should qualify them. Uh, people without wealth tend to feel a certain amount of shame or fear of blame for their financial circumstances that cause them not to uh, say as much of their story as might benefit them. Given that, what is one piece of very concrete advice you'd give to folks who are entering into this time where they'll need to be you know, gathering things in order to write that story mm -hmm. in their applications. Mm -hmm. Start early. How, how early is early? Mm, uh, in, in common chronology, no later than spring of one's junior year of high school, you should be on the path to thinking about it and getting assembled your team of loved and trusted experts who will help walk you through the process. And that can be people in your family, it could be people at your school, it could be the Scholarship Foundation or another such organization that will help with each of the turns on the path. Can you just provide maybe one in real life example of someone who has benefited, not just individually, mm -hmm. but where there has been a family benefit to understanding how oh, to do this? sure, sure. Um, we have a student who uh, I will not name by name, but who is now a teacher and one of the most a middle school history teacher um, at one of the most sought after St. Louis County school districts who came to the Scholarship Foundation with a 1.5 GPA from the community college. Um, he had done all of that himself trying to get into school, trying to make it through school, and uh, believed he probably was not worthy of continued education. Um, he, ha he had a burning desire to have a career so he could support his mother, who's disabled, um, by working with an advisor, uh, strengthening his, his academic skills and his confidence. He then transferred from community college to an area liberal arts college where he was on the dean's list 
driven, but with a team of support around him, graduated, um, and is now able to support his mother, in addition to supporting a whole lot of middle school students who are learning uh, history in a whole new way. Well, middle school can be rough. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Like he's, he's Indeed. He's my hero. <laughs> Faith Sandler is executive director of the Scholarship Foundation of St. Louis. The nonprofit is hosting a number of advising workshops on financial aid basics starting tomorrow, Wednesday, January 18th. You can learn more about those workshops by visiting sfstl.org. Also, our conversation about generation-spanning student debt will continue later this week. So if what you've heard in this segment about multi-generational debt has got your gears spinning and you'd like to share your story, leave us a voicemail at 314-516-6397. That's 314-516-NEWS. Or you can email us at talk at stlpr.org. This episode was produced by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.